Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Jesus, having risen from the tomb as he foretold, granted to us eternal life and great mercy. Welcome. Please be seated. And uh, it's a great pleasure this evening to welcome Daniel Bellis in the first of his CYC presentations, at least, although he's made many other presentations over the years. Uh, Daniel is also a graduate of St. Andrew's Theological College uh, from Sydney and uh, has been working here in Melbourne for some years now, here at the Archdiocese, um, in various capacities, actually. But his main capacity is as the coordinator of the Orthodox chaplains across the hospitals in Melbourne. So all the various hospitals across Melbourne, Daniel helps coordinate and uh, liaise, I suppose, on behalf of the Archdiocese to the hospital chaplaincies systems. But beside that, I don't know, Daniel, I think if you, if you were to list all the things you do, there'd be quite a few things, so quite a few. Um, but Daniel this evening is speaking about St. Simeon, the new theologian. Welcome, Daniel. Good evening, everyone. Christos Anessi. Um, I thought we'd speak, but we'd have a look together as a group at St. Simeon, the new theologian, at his works and some of the themes that emerge from his writings. Um, it's as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, and even he's called the new theologian. Yet a lot of what he says is so familiar to us within the church. So we'll explore themes, we'll come across ideas that even though uh, he's renowned and they're particularly uh, significant and reflective of him, of him and of his thought, uh, they're ideas that are familiar to us. Uh, I'll begin with a small a summary, a small uh, description of the context. So at the time when St. Simeon was alive, uh, around the, the, the 10th century, uh, the Byzantine Empire was in a particularly powerful position. Even though it had lost enormous territory to uh, Muslim conquests in the south, uh, it was a period of stability and a period of regrouping and growth. Uh, pretty much for the entire lifetime of St. Simeon, the emperor was St. Basil II, not St. Isaias, it was Basil II, um, and he's called Basil the, the Bulgar Slayer. Uh, so the Byzantines very much saw themselves as uh, in a safe place, and they saw themselves as living in an empire with 600 years of history. And for them, in fact, a thousand years of history because they calculated the start of their, of their, of their empire from when Rome was founded. So 600 years since uh, the, the capital was moved to Constantinople, but 1,000 years since the founding of the empire. And so the emperor, the person of the emperor was seen as a philanthropist. So the emperor would act benevolently because the person of the emperor reflected uh, Christ. And so whenever the emperor gave uh, and did good works, he gave to orphanages, he, he fed the poor, he was acting as the vice-regent, if you like, as the presence of Christ uh, on earth, and therefore he would receive the blessing of God to serve his people. In the West, 
the papal states were beginning to regroup. So after the destruction of, uh, of Rome, of the, all of the, um, the Visigoths, the Goths, and all of those people sacked Rome, Rome, after Charlemagne, was beginning to uh, reassert itself, but not too much around the time of St. Simeon. And also the Byzantine Empire stopped losing territory to, to, to Muslim expansion uh, in its south. Uh, Constantinople was very much the centre of the empire, and so it became uh, a centralised authority, a centralised structure, and so if anything were to happen, it would happen in Constantinople, not so much in the regions around. So St. Simeon, of course, lived in Constantinople. So living in Constantinople, he was in the heart and the centre of things. Um, Also, the... Uh, the Byzantines gained the areas of Serbia and Bulgaria, and that was following on the missionary work of St. Cyril and Methodios. And so, despite their losses in the south, they gained greatly uh, with Serbia and Bulgaria becoming Orthodox Christian states. And likewise, towards the end of his life, uh, Russia became a Christian state. And so, it very much takes us back a thousand years so when we think and when we encounter Saint Simeon, we think of all these things, uh, and it takes us back a thousand years, even though it's something very familiar to us. Um, Saint Theodore the Studite, a, a, a leading abbot from a monastery within Constantinople, around a couple of hundred years earlier, reformed the liturgy. He, refer, he reformed the liturgical texts. He reformed the monastic uh, liturgical tradition and public uh, ecclesial uh, ecclesial worship. In other words, the the worship of the churches took on very much a monastic flavor uh, from around uh, about 150 years before St. Simeon. Uh, And so, that said, the common person, whenever they had an issue or a question, uh, would go and attend monasteries. They'd seek out holy people. They'd seek out monks and nuns and ask them for for spiritual advice, advice on health and illness and whatever else life presents. Uh, So the most important question, if you were to ask, what did everyone think about? What was on people's minds during uh, the period when St. Simeon lived? And the question was, what would happen to my immortal soul? Their main concern, the concern of the Byzantines, was for their salvation. What would happen to me after I died? And what would happen to my soul that they believed was immortal? And so all this is just a bit of a contextual introduction. And it's, but it's important because at this time of great expansion, power and growth of the empire... The, the loudest question and what, one of the brightest persons that emerge uh, is St. Simeon, the new theologian. And so the lessons he gives us when everything else is running well, so they're financially stable, they're, they're militarily secure, the, the empire is functioning and running, the questions that St. Simeon offers us are something that can inform us and teach us uh, today a thousand years later. So St. Simeon... He was born in 949 to noble and wealthy parents in a region of Asia Minor. At the age of 11, he was sent to the imperial court uh, uh, to assist his uncle 
and there he was educated and he rose in the ranks. At the age, at the age of 14, his uncle lost his position because uh, due to political instability, and so St. Simeon uh, became a manager of a household, a, a wealthy person's household. But also at age, at age 14, St. Simeon met somebody called Simeon the Pious, uh, an important figure in his life at the monastery of Studion. This St. Simeon the Pious was a controversial figure, someone called a holy fool. A holy fool, for those who aren't familiar, is somebody who is deeply spiritual but uh, acts and has an exterior of foolishness to hide his, the true uh, nature of his spiritual state. So a holy fool will, will do silly things that will distract people from uh, venerating his person. Uh, and so this, amongst other things, St. Simeon the, the pious was a very spiritual person. Um, at the age of 21, St. Simeon, the new theologian, had his first vision of God, and we'll come to this later on. For eight years following that, and this is interesting, uh, he left uh, frequent communication with his spiritual father. So if we understand the implications of that, he sees God, he speaks to God, he experiences God, and yet being 21 years old, he shies away from that, and according to his own words, he falls back into the temptations and the natures of the flesh. And so, you know, that idea that, well, if I were to see God, then that's it, the rest of my life is, is set on its course. According to the example of St. Simeon, that's not necessarily the case. Eight years later, at age 29, he enters a monastery finally. He leaves behind his worldly uh, profession and he becomes a disciple of St. Simeon, Simeon the Pious. But their relationship uh, is disruptive to the monastery at Studion. And so he leaves and enters St. Mama's Monastery, another monastery close by, again in Constantinople. Within two years, he becomes tonsured, and in 980, only two years after entering St. Mama's Monastery, he becomes the abbot. He remains there for about 25 years. St. Simeon the Pious, his, his spiritual father, Simeon the Pious, dies at about 986, 987, so about seven years after he enters uh, St. Mama's Monastery as the abbot. Um, so it's a lot of dates, it's a lot of, I'm sorry, it's like a, bomb, a bombarding, but <clears throat> as abbot of St. Mamas Monastery, Simeon is an able administrator. For the first 15 years, he undertakes a rebuilding program of the monastery. So for the first 15 years of his life as abbot of the monastery, he rebuilds the place. Uh, he, he grew the monastery in fame, and many disciples were attracted to him because of his piety and his spirituality. But also more than that, he, uh, a monastery at the time is a refuge for people. And so people go not only with good intentions, but people, people enter a monastery to, to escape political oppression. They enter because it's a, a place where you can be fed and, and clothed and, and housed for the remainder of your life without struggling with the reality of, of a turbulent uh, world outside. And so all types of figures enter, enter a monastery a thousand years ago. Um, and, so, and so there's a clash. 
Saint Simeon, who has his vision of God, who experiences God, who is deeply spiritual and pious, clashes with monks. And around the mid-1990, 30 monks revolted and nearly killed him. He was cornered and nearly assassinated. The monks uh, appealed to the patriarch and they were eventually exiled. Um, Saint, Simeon the Pi- Saint Simeon establishes, while at the monastery, uh, worship or, or celebration of the memory of his spiritual father, Simeon the Pious. And that's important and that will come up later on as well. And so, we're coming towards the end of his, uh, the description of his life. Around the year 1003, uh, Simeon clashes with somebody from the patriarchal court called Stephan. And he challenges him to, theolo- to a theological debate. Simeon uh, answers, but also refuses and says that it, unless you have the vision of God, then any speculative theology, any questioning of how God works, the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is irrelevant to you because and, and can't, cannot be understood by you unless you have, first of all, the experience of God. And so finally, in 1009, he's exiled by the patriarch and he finishes his life at St. Macrina Monastery and he dies on the 12th of March, 1022. And so that's a very quick, it's a lot of information, a lot of dates, but it's an outline and a summary of the context, but also the life of St. Simeon. So, amongst all the things that characterize St. Simeon is his experience of God. And he experiences God as light. And I'll read uh, a story from his first vision of God when he was just a, a young person at 21 years old. He says, I was the apprentice of a venerable father, one of us who was equal to the great and exalted saints. From him I often heard of divine illuminations sent from heaven to those engaged in a spiritual struggle, consisting in a flood of light and conversations between God and man thereby. And I marveled. So great was my desire and longing for such a blessing that as I thought thereof, I forgot all things earthly and heavenly to the extent even of eating and drinking and bodily relief. Then when the meal... So he uh, goes into the city with his spiritual father and comes back famished, exhausted, and they share a meal. And St. Simeon recalls, Then when the meal was finished, he, my spiritual father, said to me, Know this, my boy, that it is neither fasting, nor vigil, nor bodily effort, nor any other laudable action that pleases God, so that he appears to us but only a soul and heart that is humble, simple, and good. When I heard this, I marveled at the words and the admonition of the holy man. More than ever, I was burning with ardor. With keenness of mind, I called to mind in a single instant all my sins and was flooded with tears. I fell at his holy feet and laid hold of them and said, Pray for me. O saint of God, 
that I may find mercy through you. For none of the good things that you have mentioned belong to me, but only many sins, as you well know. So I entered the place where I usually prayed, and mindful of the words of the holy man, I began to say, Holy God. At once I was so greatly moved to tears and loving desire for God that I would be unable to describe in words the joy and delight I then felt. I fell prostrate to the ground, and at once I saw, and behold, a great light was immaterially shining on me and seized hold of my whole mind and soul, so that I was struck with amazement at the unexpected marvel, and I was, as it were, in ecstasy. Moreover, I forgot the place where I stood, who I was, and where, and could only cry out, Lord, have mercy, so that when I came to myself, I discovered that I was reciting this. But Father, who it was that was speaking, and who moved my tongue, I do not know, only God knows. Whether this was in the body or outside the body, I conversed with this light. The light itself knows. It scattered whatever mist there was in my soul and cast out every earthly care. I expel from me all material denseness and bodily heaviness that made my members to be sluggish and numb. What an awesome marvel. But when that infinite light, which had appeared to me, for I can call it by no other fitting or appropriate name, in some way gently and gradually faded and, as it were, had withdrawn itself, I regained possession of myself and realized what its power had suddenly done to me. I reflected on this departure and considered how it has left me again to be alone in this life. So severe was the grief and pain that overcame me that I am at a loss to properly describe how great it was. A varied and most vehement pain was kindled like a fire in my heart. When it appears, it fills one with joy. When it vanishes, it wounds. And so that's an account of St. Simeon of his first vision of God as light. And much can be said, but what strikes all of us, I'm sure, is that St. Simeon refers to himself in the first person. He says, I. For those of us who remember the account of uh, the Apostle Paul, he speaks of some man. And it's often said that this is uh, reflective of the humility of St. Paul. Even though in other parts of his letters he says that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, it is by my authority that, that I say and write these things. When he speaks about his vision of God, he speaks in the third person. And so what's confronting and what first hits you when you hear this story is that St. Simeon speaks of his spiritual experiences in the first person. He confidently says, I. And so when he's describing these, uh, these accounts, he's telling them to his disciples, to his monks. And what he's saying is that if I can experience them, so can you. He says there are other characteristics. 
uh, the important conversation that neither fasting nor vigil nor bodily effort or other laudable action pleases God. So in other words, he says that it's not fasting that will get you there. It's not vigils. It's not bodily effort that will open up this mystical vision for you. But rather he, he treats that as the first step. And he speaks then of faith. And then he speaks then of tears. Because he reminds his disciples that it's through fasting and vigils and, and bodily efforts that then the meekness of his heart is, of, of, of our hearts are affected. And so that's that, those acts of faith that then produce for Saint Simeon tears and tears of repentance. And uh, on top of that is another layer, and that is his relationship with his spiritual father. And so it's not Saint Simeon who's doing this of his own will, of his own volition, because he believes himself special uh, and uh, particularly gifted. But he says that he follows his spiritual father, and so much so like we, like we encountered in the introduction, so close was he with his spiritual father that he disrupted the life of the first monastery in which he was placed and so had to leave after 12 months. And so he lived like hand in glove with his spiritual father. And he believes him a saint. As we said in the introduction, he, after his death, six years into his time at St. Mama's Monastery, he established his feast day and venerated him as a saint. So his spiritual father was Simeon the Pious. And I'll read uh, the, uh, a passage from, from another one of his texts about what he says about St. Simeon the Pious. <clears throat> Sorry. He describes, once again in the context of a mystical vision, he says that he... uh, I'll begin from halfway through the vision. So he sees light and he says, instead, and he speaks this time in the third person, he says, instead, he was totally in the presence of immaterial light and seemed to himself to turn into light, oblivious of all the world, he was filled with tears and he was, and with ineffable joy and gladness. His mind then ascended to heaven and beheld yet another light, which was clearer than that which was close at hand. In a wonderful manner, there appeared to him, standing close to the light, the saint of whom we have spoken, the old man equal to angels, who had given him the commandment and the book. When I had heard this account, I thought both how greatly the intercession of this holy man had availed for him and also how God in his providence had shown the young man the sublime height of virtue to which this holy man had attained. And so in the context of this second description of the vision of God, in in fact a different vision, because these visions accompany St. Simeon throughout his entire life. He sees his spiritual father next to the light, shining bright with the light. And so this, again, shows us what St. Simeon thinks of his spiritual father. 
when he has this ecstatic vision, this vision of heaven, he sees his spiritual father there. And so he sees his spiritual father as, again, an intercessor, as a saint, and as, some, and as a means of, and uh, a source for the revelation of God. So that's yet another um, important category or an important factor in in creating this and informing us ultimately of the Orthodox Christian spiritual life. So we have not only the ascetic practices, not only sincere repentance, but also the presence of a spiritual father who is a guide, who is a saintly person and an intercessor for us. I'll read a, a hymn of St. Simeon that further, further shows that. It's from uh, hymn 37. <clears throat> he says, and it's important, to, I'm, I'm reading this because it shows us, again, just the depth of respect that St. Simeon has. So he shows the creation of the cosmos. He speaks about God and the creation of the world. Then he speaks about the creation of him as Saint Simeon, that human Simeon. And then he speaks about the creation of him as a spiritual person. And you'll see in that context, in his third creation, if you like, the recreation of him as a Christian, just the value that he places on his spiritual father. And so, and it reads, And so your hand, having brought me forth just now, made me into a being out of non-being, and I was born in this world, not knowing you at all, the good master, you my creator, you, O maker. And I was like a blind man in the world, like an atheist, not knowing God. And so you yourself had mercy and watched over me, and having shone your light in the darkness for me, you turned me around and dragged me to yourself, O sculptor. And you brought me out of the lowest pit, from the darkness of the passions, from the deepest darkness of desires and of life's pleasures. You showed me the way you gave me a guide, who guided me to your commandments. Following him without care, I continued on. I rejoice with unspoken joy, O Logos, seeing him following your footsteps and conversing with you. But I also saw you, the good master, Together with my guide and father, I had ineffable love and desire. I was beyond faith and hope. And behold, I said, I see things to come, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so hopefully that illustrates and shows those things that we've just said. But what's, what's important for us? So this path... And these steps have taken Simeon and made him Saint Simeon. And Saint Simeon the theologian, a title given to only other, you know, as is well known, to only other two people uh, in the history of the church. Saint John the Evangelist, the theologian, and Saint Gregory the theologian, the Archbishop of Constantinople. And so this pattern is good for Saint Simeon because he's now in heaven. And so what's important for us? And he tells us pretty clearly. He says that we too must experience this vision of light. And it's so important 
that our salvation depends on it. And so coming back to the context that we quickly rushed through at the beginning, St. Simeon was living in a time where the liturgy was established, where the empire was running smoothly, when all things were running like clockwork and people became complacent eternally. St. Fortius the Great, the Archbishop of Constantinople, just a couple of centuries earlier, had begun a renaissance of intellectual thought within, within the empire. And so people were beginning to confuse knowledge with wisdom, if you like, and understanding with experience. And so people's minds, according to St. Simeon's eyes, were being tricked and deluded. And St. Simeon, at the time of this power, and this is what's important for us, at the time of this powerful, prosperous, comfortable empire, St. Simeon puts up a big stop sign and says, Stop. Unless you experience the kingdom of heaven here while you're alive, then after your death, there isn't much chance of you entering the kingdom of heaven. And so that's something, if we take away anything from tonight's uh, look at St. Simeon, that's something that we can take away with us. And so I'll read. I'll read his hymn. And again, it's hymn number one. If you find his book, you only have to go open up the hymn number one. You don't have to read the rest to find this little passage anyway. And he says, And those who suppose that they have you, that is God, Christ, the light of all the cosmos, yet say that they do not see you, that they do not live in the light, they are not enlightened, They do not continually contemplate you, O Saviour. May they learn that you have neither enlightened their mind, nor have you dwelt in their dirty hearts, and in vain do they exult in their empty hopes, expecting that they will see you, see your light after death. For here is the pledge money, the seal thus given by you, Saviour to the sheep on your right. For if the death of each obtains a final closure, and likewise for all after death, one can effect nothing, and one cannot do either good or worthless things, my Saviour. Without question, each one will remain as they were found at death. This frightens me, Master. This makes me tremble. This makes all my senses melt away that the one who dies blind and departs from here shall never more see this sun with the senses, even if they were resurrected and were again to receive the light of their eyes. So also one whose mind is blind, if they should die, they shall not gaze upon you, the rational sun, my God, but having come from darkness, they shall dwell in darkness and for eternity they shall be separated from you. So he says pretty clearly, um, and it's a direct comment of conversations that we have today, uh, that at the moment of death, the soul will remain as it is at that point. And so after death, we cannot repent. 
The extent that we love and experience God during this life will determine the relationship and the proximity of, uh, of our soul to this loving God. And so if we are today living in darkness and our life, like the Gospel says, might end tonight, then that's the place where our soul will be for all eternity. And so it's a confronting message and it's a reminder. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a scare tactic. It's not something to make us uh, you know, run out screaming in fear. But it's a gentle reminder by a saintly and loving spiritual father to his monks. He's saying this to his monks who are sitting in front of him, to his disciples. And he's saying this on the authority of his spiritual vision. He's not saying it because he read it somewhere or because he learnt it or somebody told him, an old man or an old lady, but because he's seen God and he's describing the reality of God. That's okay. And so what does St. Simeon want from us? He wants... He wants us to seize, seize the kingdom of heaven even with violence. So I can find the passage. Echoing the language of the gospel. Whether it was before they had received the grace of the Spirit or afterwards, it was never without many toils and labors, sweat and violence, difficulty and tribulation, that anyone was able to break through the darkness of the soul or see the light of the All-Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force since it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he says, struggle and fight spiritually, of course. Fight spiritually. And what does this mean? It means vigilance and fasting, ardent repentance, rainstorms of tears and remorse, continual remembering of death and unceasing prayer, and patient endurance of all sorts of trials that come upon you. Before all these silence and deep humility and perfect obedience and cutting out one's own will, and so the med meditating soul, by always embracing these and other such virtues, makes your mind at first receive illuminations. But this is quickly extinguished because it has not yet been threshed in order to ignite quickly. And ultimately, and in some way, in, con in conclusion, beginning to wind up, he speaks about love. Because all of these exhortations, these reminders of St. Simeon, are based on this characteristic, on this trait of God, that God is a loving God. And so he says, I am seated in my cell, in the night or in the day. Love is invisibly with me, unbeknown to me. Love is outside of all creatures. Then again, it is also with all things. It is fire, it is dazzling light. It becomes a cloud of light. 
it completes itself as a sun. And so as a fire is warmed my soul and in as a fire warms my soul and inflames my heart and excites it to desire and to love, loveth the Creator and sufficiently burns and inflamed in my soul, just like every radiance, a light bearer. And he goes on and on and he, he goes on and on. And so, in conclusion, and there'll be times for questions if I can answer them, we'll see. But um, it's his final hymn, it's hymn number 58 in his book of hymns. Uh, he addresses various categories of people. He's, he speaks to the king, then he speaks to bishops, then he speaks to priests, then to monastics, and then to lay people. So I'll read out the section, that what he says to, to lay people. And this is by, by way of summary. <clears throat> the whole crowd of my sacred people, come earnestly to me, your master. Come, be released from the shackles of the world. Hate all the error of the senses. Free quickly the causes of evils, the desire of sight and of flesh, and the false pretension of the viscera and of life and all other empty consideration. Know what things belong to the world of injustice, that they lead the one who sees us, the one who uses them to ruin, rather, when they use them in an emotional and attached state in this life. Unfortunately, they make you my enemy. Receive yearnings for my divine realities in your heart, for my eternal goods, which by my incarnation I have prepared for you as a friend, so that you may always be my banquet companion, inexpressibly at the table of my kingdom, my table in heaven with all the saints. For know yourself that you are mortal and perishable, that there is little in life remaining in this life, and that nothing of the things of this world follow you. None of the splendors nor enjoyments and pleasures do you take away from here to the encampment up there, except the results of either the virtuous or wicked works accomplished by you in this life. And recognizing that everything is perishable and mortal, leaving behind the things below, come up, I call you to me, the God and Saviour of everyone, so that forever and ever you may really live and you may revel in my blessings, which I have prepared for those who love me, both now and always. Amen unto the ages. Thank you. So even though he was exiled, God enlightened the people who'd exiled him, the patriarch and that, that he was really a saint. So the truth actually shone through of who he really was. Even though they didn't have the spirituality to recognise him as a saint, he recognised his Yerunda as a saint, and eventually God revealed him as a saint. That's right, yeah. So that's that's the first thing that I pointed out. The second thing is when you were saying, in one of his visions he was saying, I saw this, I experienced that. 
I've met Yerondas from Mount Athos who say, Emis, we do this and we do that and we saw this and we experienced that. And I remember one of them, I said, Pimis Emis, who, who, who do you mean by we? You and your monks? He said, no, me and my, me and my um, guardian angel. Instead of saying, I, 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 he was saying, Emis, you know, me and my guardian angel. Yeah, yeah. And that's a Yeronda that I'd met, and I thought, why is he saying emis, emis, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so in his way of experiencing his own humility. Yeah. 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 Well, stop there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Saint, so Saint Simeon, a lot said about Saint Simeon that he's, um, he's charismatic and that he goes out on his own, on his own limb. You know, and one example is that he says, he says, I, he speaks. But in fact, he's very traditional. He's, he's a, an abbot and a priest for most of his life. And even when he moves to St. Macrina's monastery, he again is in, in charge of the monastery and a spiritual flock because disciples come to him. Um, so he's fully respectful of the, the church, the teachings of the church, the tradition of the church the sacramental life of the church. Uh, he did get in trouble because he confessed to his, uh, to an, uh, his spiritual father who was a, a simple monk, not an, an, not an ordained uh, priest monk. But then that was also the practice at the time. But St. Simeon makes a point uh, that all of us, regardless of where we are in life, and in fact according to where we are in life, have to pursue uh, our own spiritual path. So if we're a priest, he, he says, it's not enough to say I'm a priest and therefore the rest of my life I can do whatever I want and I can rest on my priesthood. As though, and he, 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 makes, he says, and he says it strongly, and this is a source of controversy for him in his life, that he says, even if you are a priest, um, he almost says that your that your prayers are not heard by God. Now, the church teaches in all of its wisdom that all the prayers of every priest, because of their priesthood, are heard by God. But St. Simeon really pushes and forces the issue and says, even if you are a priest, you have to act within that uh, within your place within the within the Christian community, and take your priesthood seriously, and he says that for bishops, and he says that for kings, and he says that for us lay people as well. Mm. They didn't want to hear it because they were in the middle of a renaissance. Everything was running so well for them. Their liturgies, they thought they were going well. Their liturgies were beautiful. They had beautiful processions and beautiful chanting and hymns. And they thought, well, we've made it. But St. Simeon holds up a big stop sign and says, be careful because there's an extra step. As with all saints, um, it takes a bit of time for the church to recognise them and for God to reveal um, that they were a saint. So after St. Simeon's repose, what happened um, in, in history um, Brought about his um, canonization. Like, were, were there miracles? Um, you know, how, did, how, how was he recognised? Because he was controversial. 
yeah. in his lifetime. So what happened afterwards? Like, like we, know, like we know with Saint Nectarius, there was a lot of miracles that happened, and he was persecuted as well. Yeah. So what happened in Saint Simeon's life that we that we know for sure that yes, these things um, are true, and they're not that someone thought we'll, we'll grab a figure from back, you know, a hundred years ago and just you know use him as an use him mm. as an example. Yeah. Um, now my details are sketchy, but like like Yorondis has said, uh, he was exiled in 1009. 1010, 1011, the patriarch apologised and offered him uh, return to Constantinople and even said that he, he offered him to become a bishop. St. Simeon uh, declined the offer and remained in exile. So it was a self-imposed, he, he left the city. Um, and then for the immediate period following his death at 1022, uh, he, he still had enemies from, this is from my limited reading. Um, he he reappears with force. Uh, he was canonised soon after that, though. He was canonised soon after. And it was believed that uh, by calling him the new theologian in a society that was conservative, that was uh, traditional, calling someone new was an insult. So if you're a new, that means you're an innovator and you, you invented things. Within the Orthodox Church, it is traditional. And so it's believed that title of new theologian was given to him originally during his lifetime as an insult and around and towards his death. But soon after his death, he was recognized as a saint. But he really comes back into the center of the city, into the center of controversy when St. Gregory Palamas, a couple of hundred years after him, is struggling on Mount Athos uh, and in the city with um, the whole... Uh, the, the hesychastic controversy when the controversy about again the vision of God as light and the eternal prayer the, prayer, the Jesus prayer when that again enters the, the emperor's court and there's someone saying again a similar dynamic that, um, that God cannot be experienced and seen uh, and that's Saint Bartolome the Calabrian and Saint Gregory Palamas says he can be seen and, and experienced and it's seen and experienced as light that vision of God. The uncreated light, sorry, yeah, thank you. Yeah, uncreated light. The same light that appeared on Mount Tabor when Jesus shone at the Transfiguration. And so uh, that's when he re-enters and St. Gregory Palamas uses St. Simeon and says, well, this is an example of St. Simeon and he uses other examples as well. But that's when he re-enters in full force. But other people might know other things. That's all my limited, that's all I know. Yeah. Um, to my understanding, we're taught um, to be obedient uh, as Orthodox Christians, but I don't understand why, like how Saint Simeon, how uh, could he venerate his spiritual father as a saint if his spiritual father was not a saint? Was he a saint? Am I wrong? Or? His spiritual father was a saint, yeah, oh, okay. but he wasn't a canonically... Uh, ordained saint, if you like, wasn't canonically recognized. In other words, he wasn't recognized by a synod of the Orthodox, by the, by the usual processes of the Orthodox Church. But he was so certain because he himself had a vision of God and he himself saw in his vision, he saw his spiritual father sharing the same light as the, that uncreated, that divine light as, as uh, Christ. Um, that he was absolutely certain. 
And he, he gives all throughout his writings as a constant theme. It's in every second page, every page of his works, uh, that, my, that his spiritual father's pious, that he, uh, he gives examples of his piety, of his spirituality, of all of these things. So for St. Simeon, it's absolutely certain. Um, and also, again, others can, you know, can, can correct me, but when a saint is recognized, it's also because the people see miracles. Like we said with St. Nectarios, uh, one person sees a miracle, another person. And so he himself was a, a witness and a powerful witness of the, the sanctity of, um, of his spiritual father. So it's not, a saint isn't imposed upon the church from above. You know, the, the, a patriarch can't pick a random person and say, now you're a saint. But that saint has to show signs and evidence and has to, um, in the conscience of the church, yeah, of the people, of the people. And so that's again, you know, that's an argument from Saint Simeon that uh, it's not about rigidity and rules, and uh, but it's about where the Holy Spirit is, is, but not in a way that throws out all of the practices of the church, because that's an argument from some other, you know, Christian churches. Well, you know, that's where the Holy Spirit leads me, and you end up doing silly things. But Saint Simeon is right in the tradition of the church. He's very orthodox and canonical and traditional, but he says. But he, but he reminds us that just you don't. Our spirituality is more than just keeping all the rules. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but is still, that, like, even as a holy man as he was in his worldly life, yeah. uh, to rebel against the patriarch of Constantinople, yeah. um, and like not ex- not be obedient towards him, is that not incorrect as such? That's uh, yeah. That's. Uh, that's yeah, a tough question. That's and he was exiled, and and he accepted that punishment from the patriarch. So he was challenged about four or five years earlier by by a former bishop who was the uh, Stefan that we'd mentioned very quickly in passing, and he was challenged on his theology, and his response to Stefan, uh, who was at that time a monk, for a former bishop, um, was that unless you experience God then you have not even a right to ask these questions. Stefan asked him, he tried to trick him, and said, explain to me the difference between uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and whether that difference isn't a factual one or an actual one. In other words, it's an intellectual one or it's an experienced one. And St. Simeon writes back an enormous hymn, and it's pages long, and at the end of it he calls him foolish, uh, sinful, blasphemous, and he throws all of these words at him because he says, unless you've experienced these things, how can you begin to, to, to ask about them? Uh, that's right, yeah. And, and that gets him, that gets Stefan the monk, who's in the, the patriarch's house, furious. And it takes him four years, he gets him. And then once Simeon's exiled, the story goes that uh, his house is ransacked, his monastery is ransacked, and they just burn all of his things and... So they were out to get him. Yeah, they were out to get him. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. During the Turkish rule, a lot of the bishops weren't proper bishops. They were looking after their position. They were looking after their money, their glory. I'm saying something controversial now, but, you know, just because you're a bishop or you're a monk or you're a nun doesn't mean in the eyes of God what you're doing is acceptable. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and... 
you, there's a lot of saints that you won't even know whether they're saints. They don't yeah. have to be glorified by people to be saints. There are a lot of saints in Mount Athos. They go along pathways and they smell that there's a saint buried there. Yeah. Sometimes they might find bones buried somewhere and the saint appears to them and says, bury me again, I want to stay unknown. So there's a lot of unknown saints. A lot of yayas in Melbourne are going to, become, going to be some saints. I tell you, just follow your yaya and you're on a good path. <laughs> What about yeah. Buddhists? And Buddhists, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, others are more sacrificing, they're more humble. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. They and do the, everything their Papa wants. They're very humble. They cultivate humility. Yeah. And even when, when the 30 monks revolted against St. Simeon, because the monasteries at the time were, were places of refuge, yeah. and so there were political people fell out of uh, political power and would enter a monastery to save their lives. Or for all these different, whatever your mind boggles with your imagination, that find themselves in a monastery. And Saint Simeon was so demanding, this was his expectation of, of his monks, that they see, they see God and they see this vision. And so they didn't like it. They didn't like it. And so they, you know, they revolted and they tried to kill him and to overthrow him. I've got a question, Daniel. Uh-oh. Thank you for your talk. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious about, you mentioned how only three people have been recognised as theologians in the Orthodox Church, which seems like a very small number, because there's thousands of writings of hundreds and thousands of saints. So do you know much about what how he was recognised as a theologian or Um, what the criteria is to be recognised as a theologian? um, Just just generally... uh, the theologian is someone who, who encounters God so strongly and articulates that experience so vividly that, that their writings stand above everybody else, everybody else's, and their witness is, uh, gives insight in the way that nobody has ever given insight, but about the same God that everyone's experienced for 2,000 years or more since Moses and before then, since Adam. Um, so that's a, just very generally. And so many people have experienced God, and, but he writes in a way that's unlike anybody else, either in the East, you know, from what you read, from the East or the West. You know, his, his writings are so strong and powerful, a strong witness um, of, of, of God. And so he was given the title theologian. And same as St. John, who wrote the Gospel, and St. Gregory, his poetry... Um, you know, I haven't studied everything, but his poetry, you know, from the little bit, um, is vivid and in a way that nobody else's is. And so the church, again, collectively refers to him and is named and proclaimed a theologian. Yeah. Uh, just, a quick, uh, just a quick question on just what you mentioned just then. Um, uh, the Saint Simeon lived before the schism of, between East and West, so does the West also have his writings as well? <clears throat> Good, good question. Um, the West of the, from around that period, um, Western theology uh, uses Saint John of Damascus a lot, but doesn't really encounter Saint uh, Simeon, the new theologian. Saint John of Damascus, because he's he attempts to put uh, to systematize theology. He has a book called, I think it's called, The Font of Knowledge, and he tries to put system, uh, and at that time, the West becomes uh, scholastic, 
and likes and tries to categorize and systematize, make things systematic. Saint Simeon's not a systematic theologian. He's all about experience. In his, when you read one one little piece of his work, it has a whole of his theology. Then you read another one using totally different concepts, ideas. Again, has all of his theology, and so it doesn't really uh, gel with the Western. That's again from my limited. They they love Saint John of Damascus, but they kind of skip over Saint Simeon, the new theologian. Just a quick question. Yeah. Um, with the time frames, because I'm not really too familiar with the time frames, yeah. did Saint Simeon was did he live in that time frame as well? And and he, what, did he um, sort of was inspired in retail, in sort of in response to this sort of um, uh, theological um, scholastic thought? You know, I mean, yeah. so what you're talking about now in the West, what was happening was did that um, in sort of was that uh, uh, Saint Simeon's response to to it? Not, not really, not really. But uh, when Saint Fortios is Patriarch of Constantinople around the 800s, uh, that's the first, after a long time, big clash with with the West, and then things quieten down until I think it's 1054, isn't it? If I'm not wrong, the the schism. But Saint Simeon uh, flies under that radar. From from my again, you know, I can be people can correct me, but that's my again limited. Reading, so he flies under the radar. Saint John of Damascus uh, is prominent in in Western thought because he's systematic, and by about Saint Fortius uh, the the Great, the Patriarchal Constantinople, there's the first clash because the West is reforming itself. So that, but Saint Simeon doesn't really, uh, you know, he's not responding. He's responding to his own, you know, his own community, his own questions, his own context. Not really engaging the West, even though he's a prominent person within the empire. He's well known, and in fact, he's uh, a bishop from the West comes to him for advice, and that bishop becomes ends up leaving the Western Church or his position and becomes a monk in his monastery. So he's he's a famous person and well known, but he doesn't engage that you know theological um, you know polemic if you if you like. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Jesus, having risen from the tomb as he foretold, granted to us eternal life and great mercy. Truly he's risen. 